Welcome to episode 105 of the GTO on 5G. It's the latest insight scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by More Insights and Strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is federal analyst Anshul Sag. And this week, we also welcome special guest Sean Kenny, editor-in-chief from RCR Wireless. Welcome, Sean. It's great to be here. Thank you both for uh, having me on. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation, so let's get started. Um, I'll also mention... There, some news broke this week and Analytica that uh, tracks various 5G experts and influencers and, and so on actually included Anshul, myself, and Patrick Moorhead, our chief uh, analyst and founder, um, as 5G experts. And so I uh, just wanted to provide that. And uh, we've shared uh, more information on that on um, both Anshul and I in our Twitter links and that sort of thing. So but enough bragging, let's get started with my first topic. <clears throat> and actually, Sean, I found this in an Enterprise uh, uh, IoT Insights article. And I know that, um, that RCR Wireless hosted an event called the Private Networks Forum. But Airbo uh, Airbus at that um, event announced its intention to build a multi-market 5G network. And so my question is, could that serve as a model for other aerospace companies? And as I read through the article, what I found interesting is that that executive at Airbus um, agrees that, that Wi-Fi and cellular are better together and that it's really going to be driven on use case and propagation and that sort of thing. So they, they still find that, you know, Wi-Fi definitely is going to have its, uh, its role within, within, you know, these sorts of deployments, but that, you know, um, certainly 5G is going to bring certain advantages with propagation, you know, latency and that sort of thing. But since you're really close to it as editor-in-chief at RCR Wireless, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I thought the the presentation from Airbus was really uh, really clear eyed about the benefits that cellular brings into the equation, but also the challenges. One of the challenges that really struck out to me was that they applied this to their operations in France and Germany, both markets that have liberalized access to spectrum for enterprises, but they're different bands of spectrum. So they had a, a pretty tricky time standing up a dual core in France to cover the French and the German network. So I mean that's. You have a lot of resources. You got to have a lot of institutional know-how to do anything like that. But uh, to your point about private 4G and Wi-Fi, I mean, the numbers don't lie. They were trying to do things that Wi-Fi could not support just to spit out a few of them. This is in a 150 square meter hangar, metal building, mm -hmm. up to 10 airplanes in it at any time. So downlink speeds on 4G, 66 uh, megabytes per second on Wi-Fi 12. Inside the plane, 59 and a half versus nine deeper inside the plane in the rear cargo hold, 55 and a half versus one. So, I mean, one down on Wi-Fi, that's just not going to support what they're trying to do. So that's, a, I think, a very clear uh, uh, example of why you need both. Yeah, totally agree. You know, I've, I've been an advocate. They're better together. And I think, uh, you know, most folks agree. And certainly I think uh, that discussion proved that out as well. But hey, let's move, Sean, to your first topic. And you want to kind of provide some dish on dish. Anshul and I have talked about this on prior podcasts. Um, DISH was required to get to a certain coverage or it risked multi-billion dollars in fines. And it, it appears that it's reached that goal, but you've got some inside baseball that you want to share with our listeners and viewers. You know, Will, we talked about this the day it happened. We were both in Vegas for, for Cisco Live and they meet yeah. their 20% uh, their coverage benchmark as required by the FCC and, and conditioned on their, their uh, acquisition of Sprint assets. But I guess, you know, I've listened to DISH quarterly calls for a couple of years. Every time their executives 
lay out the strategy. I listen and I'm still not that clear on what it is exactly. You know, they've got, I think, four consumer facing brands, Boost Mobile, Ting, those different uh, footprints, but the dish brand as a consumer offering, is that the point of what they're doing? I really don't know. Yeah. I know we're going to talk a little bit later about T-Mobile's agreement with them, but if your premise is, if you're a native dish coverage, you're on a standalone core. So this is a voiceover new radio call. How do you roam onto someone else's network? It's got to be standalone. And if it's got to be standalone, it's got to be T-Mobile 600 megahertz. Yeah, I hear you. You know, Anshul, um, you know, after Sean and I spent time last week, um, we had a conversation around this, but would love to get your insight and input. Yeah, I think I think the uh, the roaming argument is probably the most compelling in terms of questioning how this will actually work, because it doesn't really seem like they've really uh, given much detail on how they're achieving all of this. Um, you know, I, I think um, they're they're trying to avoid the penalty and um, you know, it doesn't seem like it's very easy to sign up. Um, and I've heard that like people who want to sign up are not able to. Um, so it's very hard to actually validate um, whether or not they even have this coverage, which I think is actually the biggest question. Um, and I don't really know if there's a, um, a place in their agreement where that they, there is funding in place for the FCC to actually test and verify because, you know, we've, we've seen coverage maps from every carrier for eons that haven't necessarily been accurate. So the, yeah. the question is, are, are their maps even accurate and how can we even validate them? So it's, it's one of those things where um, I didn't really think it was gonna be possible for them to achieve what they were claiming they were going to do um, simply because their network wasn't built out enough. Um, and, you know, having these agreements in place is, is nice on paper, but I'm not really sure how that translates to actual real coverage for, for users. Yeah, like the real utility of it. And, you know, as Sean mentioned, that's a nice segue, Anshul, to your first topic. And you want to talk about that, that agreement between T-Mobile and DISH, right? Yes. Yeah, so um, DISH and T-Mobile have been going back and forth um, on a, um, it, it's basically a service agreement for roaming. And when, when T-Mobile um, spun off the additional, um, you know, the additional spectrum that they had to spin off as a result of the, the Sprint acquisition, um, there were a lot of, you know, disagreements between DISH and T-Mobile about, you know, whatever kind of roaming agreements that we're supposed to have and the pricing and those kinds of things. And um, it's called an M MNSA, uh, which is a master network services agreement. Um, and basically it seems like uh, the terms of that agreement are very similar to the terms uh, that uh, DISH signed with AT&T, um, which is kind of a blow to AT&T in the sense that um, when T-Mobile and DISH were not in good terms, the AT&T deal looked like it was going to benefit AT&T a lot more than T-Mobile. Right. And um, ultimately, this is like a wholesale deal for T-Mobile. So um, this kind of just, uh, you know, it, for them, it just kind of adds revenue to their, um, to their overall earnings. Um, obviously, it's going to be a lower margin business, but 
Um, that's kind of already been baked into T-Mobile's earnings. Um, and the thing is, is that I, I believe that that Dish benefits most by roaming on T-Mobile. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't really think T-Mobile considers this that big of a risk to them yeah. uh, simply because Dish is, you know, the expectation is that Dish is not really going to be gaining that many customers. Um, and if they do, they're going to be fairly low paying customers and they're not probably going to be using much data to begin with. Um, so, and, and I'm sure, you know, there's, there's terms about, um, you know, how much they can, how much data each user can consume on roaming and yeah. all those kinds of things. But um, <clears throat> it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how, how these agreements move forward. I think this agreement is, it's either five or seven years. I forget the exact term length. Um, but I know that they did sign a deal with AT&T for 10 years. Um, so I assume this is going to be some more similar in that sense. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's just, it's basically an MVNO deal. Yeah. Um, and it's not really that big of a deal other than the fact that it, it kind of looks like Dish has forgotten their CDMA, um, their CDMA spat with T-Mobile. Um, and they kind of just, you know, want to move forward, which I think is a net positive. Um, yeah. But I'd love to hear your thoughts, Will and, and Ben, Sean. Yeah, no, I'd love Sean to weigh in on this. I, I just had one question for you. Um, was this part of the original divestiture, you know, set of things that that Timo had to do when they acquired Sprint? Because I remember there was there was Spectrum reallocation. There was providing um, Dish access to T-Mobile retail footprint, and there were some other considerations. So, is this is this agreement incremental, or is it part of that overall overall kind of divestiture? Uh, the My understanding it's a it's a it's a renegotiation okay. of that agreement that was made when the original uh, acquisition and you know all the terms of that deal had been set. Because okay. don't forget, uh, that was more than two years ago. Yeah, it was. It was like it feels like it was in the ice ages. Sean, any any thoughts or insights? I mean, I think Anshul hit the the highlights there, but uh, you know, T-Mobile has the network capacity to to make this. Uh, possible as a revenue line for them. So why not? If your dish, this uh, network reaches 300 plus million people. So, I mean, you've uh, effectively got yourself the best roaming agreement that you can get right now. Yeah. Not to mention it works with your standalone core on the 600 megahertz band. So, I mean, kind of a no brainer. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you on that. Awesome. Well, let's move to my second topic this week. And I want to talk about Nokia. Um, they're launching a 5G of lab in Paris. It sounds very fancy. It's not innovation, it's innov. And my, my, my thought is, you know, can it accelerate use case deployments? What's interesting, um, I will be in Paris over uh, past the July 4th weekend, July 5th through 10th at the Lorwan Paris World Expo. And so if I have any opportunity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to dig into this personally more. But in the, in the press release, Nokia basically has stated its goal is testing and integrating 5G industrial use cases, which from my perspective, when you look at private deployments, that's where I believe the lion's share of the opportunity will be with, with 5G. Um, it, by the way, Sean, uh, this was another uh, enterprise uh, IoT Insight story. So kudos to you and the team there. But it included Airbus as well as um, companies Augmented Acoustics, Digital Immersion, IMT, SNEF Lab, Nokia Bell Labs is part of this and the Paris, uh, I'm gonna mispronounce this, Galay Hardware Accelerator. So. Um, from a frequency standpoint, they're they're looking at 2.6, 26 
in 3.8 to 4.2 gigahertz. So um, they're also doing experiments in the millimeter wave area. So, um, you know, and, you know, they, they basically have, uh, you know, three major focus areas, research and innovation, industrial and vertical use cases, as well as, again, 5G experimentation in that millimeter wave uh, band that can be very challenging from a propagation perspective. So I, I think this is all goodness, you know, uh, more hands on deck. Um, you know, we've seen Ericsson and Samsung Networks make uh, other investments in similar labs around the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, 5G is going to be about use case, uh, not necessarily the shiny object. So, Sean, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I'm glad you're reading Enterprise IoT Insights. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, <laughs> a, a site that we're really proud of. The coverage over there is top notch. Shout out to my colleague, James. Um, you know, Nokia is having a ton of success in the industrial LTE slash 5G space. And if you look at the company historically, that makes a lot of sense given their pedigree in critical communications, particularly around public safety. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is, I think, fair to say an iteration of, of that expertise and then you uh, kind of package it up, sell it to mining, sell it to logistics, sell it to automotive, whatever. Uh, so I, I think Nokia is poised to do really continue to do really well in that whole area. And uh, also worth noting that this particular lab also has some backing from the French government as it's uh, part of the French recovery plan. And they've also got okay. involvement from uh, from IMT. So if your premise is that maybe this would help inform future standardization of vertical specific standards, probably a good partner to have on board. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned, you know, Nokia's investment in private. Um, I've actually been involved with uh, the Nokia team on a series of audio podcasts, and I believe there's also video versions as well. And uh, we've talked about use cases like mining. Um, the last one that is about to post is around their MX Boost solution, which gets back to uh, that first topic around uh, the coexistence of Wi-Fi and cellular. And I mean, not to make this a bumper sticker for Nokia, but um, that solution sort of eases the, the overall deployment and management of both Wi-Fi and cellular within the enterprise. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Anshul, any thoughts before we move to Sean's next topic? I, I was just going to say that, you know, it, it seems like, um, you know, Nokia has, is kind of offering this like almost as like a service that they can deploy anywhere. Um, yeah. And I also think that, you know, France is getting increasing more serious about attracting IT investment. Um, we know that they also are looking to do chip uh, fabrication as well. So I think France is definitely starting to wake up a little bit in terms of um, innovation and wanting to be um, a leader in the space and not follow, you know, the likes of Germany, who tends to be, you know, the, the tech leader in Europe. Yeah, and I hope, you know, I'm going to spend several days in Paris uh, past the 4th of July weekend. Maybe um, I could do some digging here and um, connect with my Nokia colleagues and get a tour if that is possible. But let's move to Sean's second topic this week. And you wanna talk broadly, Sean, about transport network evolution. Um, you and I were together. I'm, I'm actually still in Las Vegas. I'm here for my second week in a row. I hope it doesn't take a year off my life. Um, spent time with Zscaler. They're a fantastic cloud security company. But you and I were together with Cisco uh, the week before, and we did spend time um, with various teams, including Jonathan Davidson's uh, Mass Scale Infrastructure Group. But I'm going to let you take it away. You know, I've been covering 5G for probably seven years at this point. And if I look back at the entire body of coverage, the vast majority is about the core network and the radio access network. And, you yeah. know, it's that, that old paradigm, you can't have wireless without wires. So just wanted to talk briefly about 
transport network, particularly optical IP convergence. Uh, you know, I think within operator organizations, there's this maybe outdated bit of thinking about routers as this incredibly expensive element of the network. So don't use them if you don't have to. Switch, switch when you can, route when you absolutely have to. But it's really not like that anymore, thanks yeah. to a lot of advancements from Cisco. So if you go for this convergence of your IP and optical layer, you have a much more elegant, much more performant, much more uh, user-friendly solution, not to mention done correctly, you're talking about 40, 50% operating cost savings, which is incredibly material yeah. for operators. You know, you're four years into ARPU stagnation. So you have got to cut structural costs out of your operation, however you can. And even if that means writing a big check for your transport network. So I think this is probably something we're going to hear a lot more about uh, in the next few years. I agree. And, you know, I've spent time, you know, with Jonathan's team and uh, this whole notion of routed optical networking is super disruptive. And in fact, I caught a little bit of uh, time with, with an executive, a sales executive on the Cisco team. And um, they're, they think that they can go in and disrupt the traditional CDN um, deployments, you know, any, any inside baseball from your perspective on that front? Oh, I mean the, the CDN uh, kind of, approach to content caching and delivery. I, I think something Mr. McCarthy there is very familiar yeah. with. And That's uh, I'm talking to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, there's also, this is, uh, you know, 5G bandwidth and latency, but today we're a lot better at the bandwidth. So maybe let's do some bandwidth optimization, see what revenue potentials are associated with it, work on that latency piece as we get a uh, release 17 commercialized and release 18 a little more refined. Yeah, no, and I, and I loved your insights on, you know, this is an opportunity to not only boost performance, but, you know, reduce um, CapEx, OpEx, and um, in light of, you know, like you were mentioning, sort of softer ARPU, but uh, awesome discussion there, bud. Hey, Anshul, you're going to uh, kind of end this with your third or your second and final topic this week, and you want to talk about SpaceX and some concerns they have around 5G and interference with their, their LEO network, right? Yeah, so, so basically, um, there's been a lot of talk about using the 12 gigahertz band for 5G. Um, there's actually a, an entire coalition. Uh, they call themselves, one sec, the uh, 5G for 12 gigahertz coalition. Um, <laughs> and basically, um, it's, it's a bunch of companies that want to, um, you know, take advantage of this spectrum that's now in current use for satellite um, and be able to use it for cellular. Obviously 12 gigahertz will not propagate very well. Um, we're already having challenges with, you know, three gigahertz um, yeah. compared to the previous cellular bands that we've used like PCS. Um, so the, the, the big rub of this is that SpaceX came out with a statement. Uh, they actually published uh, how many pages? A 16-page document yeah. um, that basically says, you know, that they believe that um, using cellular, um, you know, equipment and, and, and spectrum for cellular in, in conjunction with satellite creates 77% um, or creates more than 77% of the time, resulting in some outages of 74% of the time. So um, Starlink terminals will be drastically affected um and there's a lot of harmful interference in their belief 
Um, and they basically went through and like showed graphs and and basically kind of went through and explained why they think that it's harmful to try and use cellular in 12G. That said, this is SpaceX's own testing and right, SpaceX right. does benefit <laughs> from having this spectrum, you know, for satellite use only. Right, um, so right. they would obviously do everything within their own power to make it very clear that, that 12 gigahertz is not to be used for cellular. Um, and, you know, Starlink is a big opportunity for SpaceX as a company. Um, and they don't want to have to make any carve outs or, you know, do any kind of spectrum sharing, um, which would obviously limit their ability to serve customers. And um, in general, I think it's um, a very interesting situation because, um, you know, the current C-band that, that everybody's so happy about, a lot of that was previously used for satellite. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this pans out. Um, I have a feeling that, you know, they're not going to be able to continue to use the full, um, you know, full 12 gigahertz because it's actually a 500 megahertz um, swath of spectrum. Um, so, you know, there, there is a lot of spectrum there that can be used, but I also think that's ultimately SpaceX doesn't want to give any of it up. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see what happens, but, you know, I don't really think 12 gigahertz will necessarily be that beneficial to 5G just because of its propagation characteristics. Um, and if it operates closely enough to what millimeter wave, millimeter wave does today, yeah. um, because 12 gigahertz is far higher than, you know, seven or six, um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's gonna probably behave a lot like millimeter wave and might not really even make sense to try to, you know, add to the spectrum um, pool. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I just I want to make a comment on sort of the math statement. It reminds me of that one of my favorite lines in Anchorman: "60 percent of the time, it works every time." <laughs> so, I mean, I'm trying to follow that math there. And you know, Anshul, to your point, you know, it, it benefits you know Starlink to to continue to kind of keep this carved out. Sean, any any insights here? Uh, if you're like me and you like to read snippy FCC filings, these are great, <laughs> just great to read. Uh, on the other side of uh, the, the conversation is a company called RS Access, which if you kind of trace them back, that's, that's essentially uh, Michael Dell company, future trillionaire yeah. Michael Dell. And right. so they engaged an engineering firm to, to look into what interference, if any, would be called, uh, caused. And they found that this would be unnoticeable to customers. And in response to that, Starlink said that the, uh, the assessment from RS Access is, quote, technically meritless. And uh, those are just some of the gems in those filings. Oh, man. Yeah. Super, super snippy for sure, man. Awesome. Well, hey, Sean, thanks for joining. It's been a great conversation. We're absolutely going to have you back on in the future. I think your insights are just awesome. It just brings a different perspective to our podcast. So thank you. And um, Anshul, why don't you take us home? Absolutely. We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insights on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Sean is at Sean Kenny RCR. Will is at Will Tom Tech. And I'm at Anshul Saad. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune in again next week.